All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the MarTechno Beat, a specially curated podcast series powered by NetCore Solutions. Here's where you can gain cutting-edge insights from leading marketers, data scientists, product champions, and MarTech influencers on all things user growth, engagement, retention, and AI-led personalization. Throughout this series, we're interacting with global e-commerce experts and thought leaders to get their insight into the biggest e-commerce personalization trends into 2021 and beyond. I'm your host, Tim Moran from NetCore Solutions, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Edward Chenard. Edward, how are you today? Doing good, thank you. Pleasure to have you. So, for those of you that might not know, um, you're considered as one of the top experience, science, and personalization thought leaders in the world. Uh, focused in driving value by creating and executing data, digital and analytics transformation initiatives, building new business channels for large and small organizations, working along with various business lines to define the customer experience, data, engineering, analytics, and digital transformation strategy for the next growth opportunities, product offerings, or customer experience. Uh, as if you don't have uh, enough on your plate, uh, you also lead a broad portfolio of data science, uh, data services, excuse me, at Fortune 500s and startups uh, to include uh, master data management, data science, and repository curation. Uh, today's episode will unravel deep dive insights on how pure play e-commerce and DTC e-commerce brands can unlock new waves of user growth, conversion, and retention through the power of personalized customer experience at scale. Um, again, Edward, uh, I, I covered off a lot there. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, is there anything I missed? Or, uh, you know, is there anything else that, uh, you know, those of you in my audience uh, might not necessarily uh, know you for? I'm uh, still an avid fan of playing hockey, uh, if anybody's into that. Uh, I live in Minnesota, so it's the perfect place to, to do some outdoor, uh, outdoor skating and, and uh, passing the puck around every now and then. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, an ice hockey fan, it's something that you can enjoy in the summer and the winter. Uh, you know, me being, of course, indoors uh, in different rinks, but myself being from the Northeast, um, when I think of ice hockey, I think of uh, snow and cold, and I just want it to be over at this point. So uh, please don't take that the wrong way. I live in Minnesota because I love the cold. So, you know, go where you like the environment. But it's been uh, a pretty good place for uh, for innovation uh, since most people are indoors like half of the year because of the cold. You got plenty of time to to innovate and think up new ideas. Absolutely, and uh, you, you've had quite the experience in your professional history. Um, you know, I'm aware of all of the uh, corporate headquarters that are in Minnesota, but maybe you could just touch on some of the notable names uh, that people in the audience might be aware of. Yeah, well, my my data career really kind of started out at uh, GE, where I was doing things like telematics, uh, and really it was my first foray into big data before that term was even on my radar. Uh, but then uh, a few years later, I ended up at Best Buy, where I was brought in to build out uh, personalization, and it quickly morphed into building out the big data system, and then building out the data science uh, practice, and uh, that team of mine that I built, we actually processed more data than the rest of Best Buy combined. And uh, it was one of the pillars for the Renew Blue turnaround strategy that helped Best Buy to uh, get out of the, the slump that it was in at that time. Uh, then I went over to Target, 
uh, and help build out their big data, data science uh, practices as well, particularly focused on the, the digital marketing side and trying to blend some of the in-store and, and online experiences. So got to play a little bit with the, uh, the curbside pickup because I had done that over at Best Buy. And then of course, Target wanted to pick my brain on that. Uh, so this past year, it's a service that uh, a lot of people definitely have been using that uh, they weren't using before. Then I went over to C.H. Uh, Robinson, largest uh, third-party logistics provider in the U.S., and built out uh, a product called Navisphere Vision, which is basically a uh, predictive uh, uh, shipping uh, engine where uh, we, we help a lot of customers like Walmart uh, and, uh, and, and Amazon figure out how to make sure their, their shipments actually get to their distribution centers on time, uh, which is... Uh, probably getting a lot of use right now uh, across the middle of the US. And then uh, yeah, currently right absolutely. now, I am building out the, uh, the, uh, the data practice uh, over at uh, Olo, which is a provider of helping many restaurants with their, uh, their delivery services right now. So it, it's correct if I assume that you've had a broad experience, understandably, and you've had a uh, um, just a, a, a tremendous amount of uh, work that you're able to do within uh, a, a really diverse set of verticals from retail to restaurants and uh, some really broad names. So I'm excited to get uh, some of your insights into uh, the topics that we have today. Um, specifically, you talked about uh, Best Buy and uh, you talked about how um, you handle more uh, data within your division than within the rest of uh, the organization combined. And I think a lot of that really, um, I think, would lend towards uh, scalable personalization. Um, you know, in this case, my question is that uh, a scalable personalization strategy uh, for any B2C business, especially e-commerce, um, it, it's built on a foundation of customer data, understandably. Um, capturing and consolidating that data across channels and platforms, uh, it, it's just a tremendous challenge that people face on a daily basis. Um, in your experience, how uh, can e-commerce brands overcome this before building out a personalization strategy? Well, it, it, I, I actually think that's sort of one of the, the, the pitfalls that a lot of companies fall into. They, they look at the data and they say, well, we need to capture data, big data, you know, let, let's, let's increase our volume. And there, there's some validity to that, but one of the things that, and I, and I went down that, that route myself, but one of the things I started to realize was just the, the degradation of the experience uh, that we were trying to craft. So we, we went back and we really started to look at what was really important around creating a good personalization experience. And it really comes down to uh, the relevancy of uh, the experience, which means focusing on the data that helps you understand what is the experience someone's trying to really have when they come in to purchase something. I like to use the example of an Xbox. Uh, lots of people buy them for lots of different reasons, but I can guarantee you nobody buys an Xbox just to have it sit in their living room and collect dust. They're always an experience they're purchasing. Like right now in Minnesota, it's been like minus 15 during the day for the past two weeks. The, the kids are inside. You don't want them tearing the house up, so the Xbox keeps them contained. The, the teenager or the 20 something year old is thinking about the games they're gonna be playing against their friends. These are experiences people are buying. So what is the experience and, and who is the actual individual? We have to really three-dimensionalize our, our data and understand the, our consumers more at a personal level. And what is, 
what is it they're trying to create with uh, the purchases that they're doing? That then helped us understand really what data should we collect? And there was a lot of data we were just pulling in that we realized it really isn't relevant for what we, we really need to be focusing on. Uh, uh, you know, we were collecting things like device IDs and, and locations. And to some extent, yeah, those things are, are important. But then you start to find the, the patterns of how people really start to search for products. So is somebody, somebody a deal shopper? versus somebody who just wants the latest and greatest uh, Apple product, and they're always going to wait in line to get it first. That How you approach them is going to be very different. And most of the data that was being collected just didn't help us answer uh, th those questions around how do we engage them. So once we changed that script, uh, it really helped us to accelerate our, our ability to engage customers. And you're talking about taking conversion rates from like a, a 3 to 5% up into the, uh, into the teens. So it, it was very impactful. And you know, when you're talking about electronics, which is usually like a half a percent to 1% conversion without any personalization, uh, you know, seeing conversion rates around 15% is pretty massive. Yeah, I would say so. And uh, it's interesting, um, the, you know, the detail that you go there about how the context of the data is so important. And you need to be thinking about the shoppers and the different use cases. I mean, it, I, I think most marketers listening to this uh, podcast um, do at least a certain amount of that. Um, but really what I'm gaining from, uh, from what you had just mentioned is that we need to start thinking deeper about the data. We need to understand yeah. how that data informs our view of the customer um, and then leverage that to better curate the experience uh, for the customer, it, not only in like an in-store kind of a situation, but to understand how they're going to use the product, right? Like you mentioned, if they're uh, somebody in Minnesota looking at negative 15 degree days, what's that product going to be used for? Um, you know, I think a lot of the uh, press about Xbox and PlayStation these days is about uh, the reseller market and how people just can't get a hold of one. Um, and it's interesting to me how uh, retailers have used their data to overcome that challenge by bundling products. Right. And putting a bundle together with uh, games and controllers and things that it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, for the reseller, uh, the resale uh, person to go and, you know, basically go and try to uh, scalp that. But it makes a lot of sense for the shopper because they're things that consumer would have purchased anyway. Um, so, I mean, in that regard, there's so much data that not only electronics retailers, but um, you know, fashion or, you know, home appliance, any type of retailer, basically, or many, you know, different types of digital businesses. The depth of data is incredible. Um, and I'm just curious about uh, what views do you have about uh, the roles that uh, data science and what it plays in creating a sustainable personalization strategy? Well, for me, data science is, uh, there. there's a kind of the, the standard or now we can even probably call it the traditional view of what a data scientist does, which is focus on stats, coding. That I actually found to be quite limiting. Uh, and uh, a good example, uh, you know, one of, one of the companies I went to, they were trying to do personalization with a, a lot of statisticians, data scientists, uh, and it just wasn't working. They really weren't connecting with the customer. And one of the things I asked was, so how do you determine your algorithm is right for the market? They said, well, we just listen to the data. It's like, but do you understand the customer <clears throat> that's creating the data? And they, they really didn't understand where I was going with that. Uh, so on, right away brought in the personas uh, that had been uh, developed by design, said, 
which one of these personas is going to use that particular algorithm and at what point in the customer journey? But they couldn't answer that. Uh, so I started bringing in uh, uh, people that have backgrounds in anthropology, sociology, psychology. We actually started scrubbing the biases out of the algorithms and fo fo focusing on the biases that were much more what you would see with the personas. That got the conversion rates up uh, fairly quickly. And since then, I, I've really had a mixture of uh, data science skill sets where there is more of that behavioral science piece, but also that traditional uh, statistical approach as well. And that's something I still find is <clears throat> fairly unique in the, the marketplace. You just don't see a lot of behavioral scientists on data scientist teams, which I think is a real shame. Uh, they definitely should be. And, and even using uh, uh, linguists uh, just to regionalize your, your message. Uh, how we speak in Minnesota is not how people speak in New York City. Uh, language is a little less direct out here than it is in New York. Having a linguist help to craft the regional message. You know, you can still have a templated email by region, but having it uh, really sound like someone who is like your neighbor is uh, more impactful than just getting a canned email that sounds like a Minnesotan talking to a New Yorker. And I can tell you the, the impact of that when I initially did an experiment around that, we ended up getting a 400% increase in open and conversion rates on emails. And we had to run the experiment twice because I was like, did we screw up our math somewhere along the way? This, this can't be possible. How did we get it this good? And we, we kept running it. Sure enough, we kept hidden in that, in that range. So it, it really demonstrated to me the impact of bringing in uh, behavioral science and social sciences into the mix. That makes a tremendous amount of sense. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting from a large brand standpoint, the resources that are available to be able to bring in data scientists and bring in behavioral data scientists. Um, many small organizations don't necessarily, I think, have the budget or the luxury um, to be able to invest in those uh, different types of uh, specialists. Um, you know, we see that a lot at NetCore ourselves. Um, we often work with companies to help drive engagement rates and, you know, email rates for open. And it often comes with a balance of, um, you know, a mix of software and services or artificial intelligence and, um, you know, marketers using predefined journeys on a customer engagement platform. You know, if you, if you think of um, from one end of the spectrum using artificial intelligence to power one-to-one -one product recommendations and journeys, and then the other end of the spectrum is a marketer that's using uh, predefined journeys that they've thought through. And maybe they didn't have uh, a behavioral data scientist, but they've tried to put their themselves in the feet of the shopper as good as possible, as well as possible. How do you think an e-commerce brand can strike the balance between those two very different approaches? Maybe that, uh, you know, again, they don't have the resources to have all of the data scientists available. Well, what I find, so at, at, the, at yeah, large companies, you often will have very good technical talent uh, available to you. Uh, at smaller organizations, that, that may not be the case. But where smaller organizations, I find, often excel is you do have a number of people that have far better expert intuition about their market than you see at a larger organization. So you may have somebody who's been with the company you know, since they left school and they've been there for 15 years. They probably know their, their market really well at that point in time. Whereas at the larger companies, uh, yeah, you know, 
particularly on the data science side, like the average person is in and out in like two, three years. So they aren't sticking around long enough to develop that expert intuition. If you have someone on your, your team that does have that level of expert intuition, I, I would actually say that that's probably stronger than, than the actual algorithms being built by the larger companies. Uh, and it's just been my experience that uh, as long as they're staying relevant and current uh, with the market, you can really uh, do a lot because what, what really is an, is an algorithm? It's really a collection of assumptions and biases that, that somebody baked into code. And repl trying to replicate that expert intuition on a mass scale, that, that's the one drawback. If you do have the, those couple of people at a small company, you really can't scale them up that easily. Now, if you can replicate their knowledge into an algorithm, that, that would be great for helping you to scale. Uh, and, and there are some, some methods to help you do that. Uh, it's just not something that most small organizations are, e are even gonna become aware of because they just won't have the, uh, the technical talent usually available to them or even the, the understanding that there's things like Swarm AI that they could actually try to harness to, to gather that expert intuition into an algorithm to help them. So you're talking about biases and AI, and I immediately think of, I think it was the example of, was it, was it Microsoft that put a chat bot uh, freely open to the internet? And it went off the rails very quickly. Um, and I think, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure I'll get an email about this if uh, I'm misnaming uh, the company. So again, I'll have to double check that. But, um, you know, the, the, the thought there is use people and trust people who know the space. Trust the consumer or trust the, the person that has experience with the organization that understands your consumers, your shoppers, and use them to not only create and craft and curate those customer journeys, maybe in a predefined fashion, but in the cases where maybe there is um, some level of artificial intelligence being leveraged within the organization, maybe almost use them as a, a pseudo data scientist, a pseudo behavioral scientist to spot check the AI, to prove the results and to understand if any type of intervention or tweaks need to happen. But would that be a correct statement, Edward? Yeah, uh, you know, dom domain knowledge is, to me, is very crucial. And for, for my teams, uh, data scientists and engineers, I, I always had them you know, target Best Buy, go, go to the stores, spend time working in the stores, understand what it's like, really observe how customers are using their devices in the store to get a better understanding. Because if you're just staying in your in your own little cubicle or office, you, you just can't really rely on the data. Because again, it, it, I, I look at data and I, I think that we, most companies misinterpret it as being something concrete, uh, very uh, logical, but I look at it as very interpreted. Uh, unless you look at ones and zeros, have you ever really seen data? No, you're really interpreting it most of the time. It's either in a spreadsheet, it's either on a web page or PowerPoint. That's all data just being interpreted in a specific way. So the interpretation of it really impacts uh, what people walk away with in terms of the, the knowledge they gain from it. Yeah, that's so true. And it's the interpretation, again, that can lead to bias. But if you have those trusted people, um, you're more likely, I think, to uh, potentially get a better outcome in that case. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, then whenever, if you go to the other. Whenever I hear the phrase, like I just listen to the data, I always think that's the total cop out because you, data doesn't speak, it's just interpreted. How well did you interpret it? That That's really what I'm usually drilling down into when I look at uh, uh, any type of algorithm. It's 
what were the biases and assumptions you baked in there? And, you know, some of them, uh, the, the teams, they'll, they'll design it really based off of their own shopping patterns. And it's like, are you the primary market? So a good example at Target, you know, 80 something percent of the Target uh, regular shopping base is female. Uh, the, some of the, the, the teams that developed the first algorithms in data science and uh, personalization were, were all male. And they really didn't go shopping and they didn't really shop like the, the average uh, shopper Target did. So there was a lot of biases and assumptions baked into the algorithms that were not accurate and just had to be changed. Yeah, it, 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 that puts a lot of context on it too and how much we trust interpretations of data, who's providing those interpretations, what's their experience with the relevant um, consumer set. Um, you know, that, that's, that's some really interesting uh, stuff to be able to you know, consume, I think, uh, in the future in terms of uh, future learning or things to observe within a, a marketing program. Now, if, yeah. if, if you take yourself and put yourself into the uh, shoes of, let's say, the mid-market business, and um, they're looking to grow and expand and become more sophisticated. Um, maybe you can provide some examples, uh, maybe like two or three examples of, uh, you know, e-commerce brands uh, besides like the pioneers of Amazon and the others, but maybe some great examples of brands that are acing personalization at scale um, and some thoughts on what they're getting right. You know, I, I really liked uh, Rent the Runway when I, when I first, uh, uh, was introduced to their brand, just the way they allowed people to take photos of how the average person looked wearing an outfit. And I thought it was great because instead of just getting some model, which uh, you know, has like 0% body fat and, you know, looks great. And now you can see like somebody that actually looks like more like you uh, and how they look wearing that clothes. You can be like, oh yeah, this is probably how it would look on me too, since we have similar body shape. I thought that was a really great feature. And then uh, I, the, the name's escaping me right now, but there's a, a company down in Brazil and they're a clothing company, uh, kind of mid-market uh, size. Brazil's an interesting one because a lot of the personalization that we're allowed to do in the US is illegal down in Brazil. Uh, so a lot of the tracking uh, that, that we can do, they can't. Their method of getting around that was to allow people to plug in their own measurements and have the, the clothes selected for them. Uh, so basically curating the, the catalog just based off of their own measurements and other preferences they were putting in there. And I thought it was a very good creative way to get around some, some restrictions that were placed on them that here in the US we, we just don't have to deal with. So. Uh, I, I thought it was pretty good. Actually, overall, I thought there was a lot of companies down in Brazil and other places like like Chile and Argentina that were, were quite creative in their approaches versus what we do here in the U.S. Uh, so if you wanted to look outside the U.S., I would actually look at Latin America as a place for, for some innovation uh, happening in, in the, the e-commerce digital space. And uh, That's interesting. You know, I, I would just say, you know, some of the... Uh, you know, more the, the mid-sized company like uh, Maurice is that that's a, a Minnesota brand up in Duluth. Uh, I think they're also doing uh, some some pretty good, just moderate changes along the way of just trying to increase personalization, but not disrupting the experience too much. Because that's sometimes what I've seen is you can implement these new programs and it's almost like changing your, your brand too much, too fast. 
and you can lose some customers along the way. Whereas they, they're taking much more of a, an incremental approach, uh, really changing the brand uh, slowly over time. And I do think that, that that's a good approach. Even though I like to see rapid change, I, I know I, I'm probably in the minority when it comes to the whole of the population. So they're, they're being more conscious about what that, that level of change and adaption for, for the consumer actually is. And I think that's a good approach. Yeah, I, and I think that's probably a lot more attainable too for the audience uh, that we're talking about um, for you know the mid-tier business audience. Um, you know, the idea of the incremental change is where you can change, make a change, and then observe the effect that change has on your business. Um, really interesting point that you brought up too, especially about looking at the Latin American market um, and about the restrictions they deal with. Um, you know, at NetCore, we have a, a global base of customers and, you know, we're often speaking with uh, e-commerce uh, retail and e-commerce specific retail uh, companies and then uh, brick and mortar and e-commerce retailers as well as others. And, and there are a lot of data challenges, uh, so much so that we've developed our products um, with the thought of making sure that, um, you know, they can stay uh, well within the regulations of the various localities that they're in, like our personalization product, for example. Um, we limit the use of PII. Uh, but overall, um, you know, in the sense that, um, like you mentioned, if you can look at the innovation that's done within areas where there are limitations and the creative ways people are overcoming that, um, that's often, I think, now that you mentioned it, a really excellent place to find some nuggets that you can pattern yourself or model yourself after. Um, so I know we're running down on time. Uh, one last question for you, and I like to ask everybody this. So um, if, if you look into your crystal ball, uh, what are maybe one or two top e-commerce personalization trends that you think people should really watch out for uh, in the coming year? I, I think the uh, more people are becoming more cognizant of the value of their own data. And there have been some discussions around like personal clouds where people can manage their own data a bit better. I think that's probably a more of a long-term uh, thing that's gonna happen. But as the younger generation, they, they seem to understand the value of their data more. I can see that happening more and more over the next decade. The, the other thing is just really moving away from that that templated approach of personalization. Even if you go to the large companies, it's it's still pretty much just recommenders and slapping someone's name on a templated email. And that's just table stakes. If you really want to engage people, it's changing the, the dialogue instead of just, we're going to, I remember once I was interviewing with a, a large brand, I won't say who, but they said, we define the experience for our customers. And I was just thinking, wow, how like last century that thinking is. It's really the other way around. Creating an environment for the consumers to tell you, hey, here's what I like to create. Help me make that happen. It's actually a much more rewarding uh, approach than trying to figure out what are the trends. You're, you're really creating a dialogue with the customers. And at the end of the day, if somebody has a conversation going on with you, they're gonna stay with you. They're not gonna look at you as just a commodity. Uh, you know, when I go onto to Amazon, it's really a commodity in a lot of ways. It's like, well, what's the lowest price I can get here? Well, maybe I can go to Walmart, get it lower. But if I get a relationship going, a real, feels like a real relationship where I've actually got back and forth going forward, going, going on, like let's say, I wanted to, uh, you know, I'm looking for a new mountain bike once the snow all melts. 
love to have some have a company that actually engages with me, understands the experience I'm trying to create here, and, and really builds some type of connection. And actually, I worked with a uh, when I was doing consulting, I worked with a company, SRAM, out of Chicago. They do uh, uh, bike accessories for road and mountain bike. And that's exactly what we we did was created this connection with the brand and the experience that that the average person wanted to have. So instead of focusing on the, the hardcore user, it was really much more the weekend rider who wants to attain that that look and image that they're they're kind of like the, the constant biker. That that's really what what helped engage uh, with them. They were able to get their uh, the number of new customers above the the forecasted rate uh, that they were looking for with their their new uh, their new products and their new app that they had launched. And I do think that's really where it has to go. Figure out how do I create a good conversation? Because at the end of the day, if you don't have that, you're still just guessing. And that's really what I, I, I understood when I was at Best Buy and Target. If you follow the traditional personalization approaches, you're really just throwing stuff out there saying, hey, does this interest you? No? Okay, what about this? All right, I'll recommend this other product here. Just get a conversation. Just ask, hey, why, why, are, why are you coming to engage with us today? What is it we can help you with? That's going to give you so much better information and get you to that sale so much faster. I remember when I was at Target Best Buy, we we saw research that said it takes people will look at 10 different sources before making a purchase. Well, if you got a relationship, they're probably just going to deal with you or maybe one or two others at the most. So your odds of getting that sale are going to be much higher. And I bet you the conversion rate and the cost of acquisition and retainment is going to go down across the board. Yeah, that's excellent. And uh, Edward, just, uh, I mean, to, to cover on everything, I think the way that you summarized that um, really pulls together um, just about everything that you've spoken about um, during our time together here. Um, you know, there's value in your own data as an organization. Um, the goal is to create an engaging experience, not just understand data or technology or software for, for technology's sake. Um, the, really, the goal should be to observe consumer behavior to better understand that data and to understand if there are biases in the data and the way in which um, you're representing that to consumer behavior. And then last but not least, it, it comes down to the people. Whether you're a large organization who can afford uh, behavioral data scientists or your um, you know, other businesses that maybe don't have that luxury, there's a real value in trusting people who have experience in this space. And it's those people who know the space and understand who the consumer is and what their value system is um, that can better help you to either work with those predefined journeys to observe if there's uh, behavioral biases within data or to understand if AI is maybe not performing in the way that it should. Um, so in summary, Edward, uh, thank you so much for joining us and for making the time today. Um, I definitely appreciate you uh, speaking with, with us. Yeah, no problem. And, you know, I guess there's just one final thought. I would just say that uh, uh, I often get called a data scientist, and I always correct everybody that, that does it. I never call myself one. Uh, I really think, like, particularly for a marketer, I actually come out of, of marketing. My, my degrees were marketing. My first job was in marketing. Uh, I like to say I'm, I'm more of an experienced strategist because at the end of the day, I think that's the real focus. It's not the data. The data helps you understand the experience and how to engage, but it's really about crafting the right experience for the right audience. That's excellent. Um, 
You've given us a lot to think about, and I'm sure that our global audience will benefit greatly from everything that you shared with us today. Um, you know, again, Edward, if, if, if they want to follow up on more of your thoughts, uh, where's the best place for people to find you? Maybe uh, through contact or through social channels? Really, the uh, the only place I, I, I generally post on a regular basis is on LinkedIn. Uh, so just just look me up on there. Uh, I mean, I usually always accept a, a, a connection request. That's great. Um, and again, for everybody, it's Edward Chenard. Uh, look him up on LinkedIn. He's the one with just the tremendous amount of experience. You, you probably can't miss him. Uh, and again, uh, a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in. For more content on all things personalization, audience science, and marketing technology, uh, do subscribe or follow the MarTechno Beat at www.netcorecloud.com or write to us at engage at netcorecloud.com with any suggestions you might have. Again, my name is Tim Moran, and thanks for listening today.